We've been involving ourselves in a, the book of Luke, looking at some of the stories and the parables that Jesus told. And what percolates to the surface of these themes is a spirit of generosity, which has been the title of the series that we've been on, a spirit of generosity. Last week, this service, um, I didn't have the opportunity to, to preach the message that the first service got because we had such a, an outpouring of love and worship during our, our water baptism service. So uh, if, if you feel like you are missing something, you may need to go to the website to get the first part of what will be part two today of generosity and wealth. There's a passage of scripture that's found in Luke chapter 16, and it's a really interesting parable that Jesus told that uh, I'd like to read to you. It's found in uh, verses 1 through 14. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job and I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I ask that through the direction of your Holy Spirit and the anointing of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring to us some clarity for, from a parable that can be a little confusing. And from it, Lord, I ask that you would give our lives and our thoughts and our priorities direction so that we can live in such a way that brings pleasure to you and in such a way, O oh God, that builds your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. For these past five or six weeks, we've been looking at what it means to live with a spirit of generosity. And the first message that we talked about was relational generosity. How free are we in our relationships to grant to other people specifically forgiveness? And we felt very challenged in the word as it related to that. We've talked about 
emotionally, making ourselves vulnerable and, and being willing to be involved with people and letting them into our lives. We, we talked about the generosity of letting people into our homes and into the places that we feel most comfortable so that by doing so we can develop relationships with them and that through our influence they can come to know our Lord. We ministered on the aspect of hospitality and the times and the talents that each of us have and how we can use those for the glory of the Lord and involve ourselves in ministries and, and uh, in, in such a way give of ourselves for the benefit of others. And while it's possible to be financially generous without being generous in your spirit or generous in your heart, you cannot be generous in your spirit without being shockingly generous with your money. As I said, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the first part, I would encourage you to go to our website and you can find that there. But within this particular passage of Scripture, if you don't know the context of everything that Jesus was talking about here, and if you don't know a little bit about the commerce of the area, it can be very distracting. So here's the story that Jesus is telling because it's a great narrative. The story is about a rich man, and he owns a lot of things. And he has somebody who's managing, managing that for him who is acting as a combination COO and CFO. In other words, he's in charge of not only the operations but a, of the entire financial picture for the whole household. This is an individual that takes the money and runs the businesses and runs the household and invests the money and he gives an account to the owner for everything that he does. He would have been in charge of everything that the owner has. And we are told that in this particular instance, this has been a dishonest manager. The owner of the household calls him in and is getting ready to fire him and gives him a termination notice. And he said, you've got just enough time to get my affairs in order before you're done. And this dishonest manager is beginning to recognize that he has not built any goodwill up anywhere else. And so as he begins to think about the opportunities for future employment, he recognizes his options would be limited to physical labor of digging ditches. And he says, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm not capable of digging ditches. And the other is that I would have to go out and beg. And he says, and I'm too proud to beg. So he'd been so dishonest and had so few friends that these were the two options that he saw within his mind. So he began to calculate in his heart, how can I change the situation? And what he does is he calls in those who owed his master money and goods, and he brings them in, and he hands them their bill, and he says to them, how much do you owe? And they begin to give a list, and he says, scratch off what you owe and make it less. And he did this for both one who owed olive oil and one who owed in grain. And realizing that as a result of the actions that he had took, these people that owed money would begin to look at him in a new light and feel, you know what, I like this guy because of the changes that he made in my bill. Now we look at this and we have a hard time understanding it because Jesus in verse 8 begins to say to him, the master commended the dishonest man uh, manager because he acted shrewdly. And we look at it and he goes, why would you commend somebody who's been ripping people off and ultimately then begins to rip you off? An interesting part of this that we need to know to be able to put this together is that it was not uncommon in that day and age for someone who was the steward or the manager of the household to begin to add surcharges on to the actual bill. And so it could very well be that this 
dishonest manager brought those people in knowing that he had added to their bill so that he could enrich himself and he's saying just bring it down to what the actual debt was and scratch off all that so you don't have to owe me any surcharge on this just wipe that off so now the debt is actually what it was of course they look at that and are thankful that they pay less and begin to have a little bit of goodwill toward him so by taking his own fees out not only did he make the debtor happy but the owner of everything said you know what People look at me in a different way because of the way that you have acted. They feel more kindly to me because of this. Now, whether that's exactly how this all works or not, what we do know is that within the framework of a secular view, which Jesus was speaking, he said, this man was wiser with the way that he dealt with money oftentimes than the people who were living in the light or my family or my people. So Jesus begins to teach from this parable about how we are to use our worldly wealth. And there's three points that I would like to bring up this morning. Two of them I'm going to use in the ministry, and the third one I'm going to use as we get to communion. These three points are, we are stewards of money that's not ours. We are in need of a love that is not here. And we are recipients of a friendship that cannot be equaled. In your bulletin is an outline, and I would encourage you to take some notes of things that may uh, have the Lord speaking to you about. First point. We are stewards of money that is not ours. The point is brief, but it's very hard-hitting. We are stewards. We hold in our hand. We guide and direct money that doesn't belong to us. Jesus is likening this manager, the one who is in charge of a rich person's fortune and all of the properties and all of their money and all of their businesses, and he likens that to being a steward. And the, the Greek word that is used in this is oikonomos, which is a word that means manager of the house or steward. And so we begin to draw from that that the reason that he is a steward is he's making a living. He's drawing his income from somebody else's money and business. When you're doing that, you're managing something that doesn't belong to you. And so this manager was managing money and living from it that was not his. So what Jesus is saying right out of the gate is this. If you understand that there is a God, and as I look around this room this morning, the vast majority of us are here because we understand that God exists and has blessed us with life. If you understand that, then you have to know that everything that he puts into your hands, everything that goes through your fingers, does not belong to you, but has been given for, to you to manage. Now, Americans in particular have a hard time with this. Many of you that have had opportunities to go to other countries, you've seen the way they live, and, and, and it's oftentimes at such a, a much lower level than what we're accustomed to. We get to the point where, as Americans, we often say, you know what, I worked for it, I worked hard, I made it, it's my money, and Jesus, keep your fingers out of my wallet. But I want you to think about that for a minute. If there is a God, first of all, he made you alive today. You woke up this morning listening to the same rain I did pounding down on the roof. And in the middle of all of that, there was a thankfulness that at least you opened your eyes and God has given you a new day to be alive because you make far more money when you're alive than when you're dead. Just throw that out there as a fact. Secondly, you are all well enough today to come to the house of the Lord. There's a health that has been given to us. 
It's fascinating that when people get sick, they really get upset with God, say, why did you let this happen? But we live in a fallen world where everyone and everything is unraveling, so the fact of the matter is, it's a miracle you're in as good a shape as you really are today. It's a miracle. God's holding you together. And every single day that you're alive, and every single day that you have a health, is a gift from God for you to be able to use your talents and ability. Speaking of talents, where do you think you got those from? Some say, well, my parents. And where did they get them from? Their parents, and you could go on and on, but ultimately you're gonna get back to God. God has created each of you with certain abilities and talents. Some of you are great with math, some of you are not. Some of you are great with art, some of you are not. God has created all of us with all of these different things and the talents, and he wants us to use all of these things. God gave you the talents and abilities that you have. What about your circumstances? There are those that say, I work hard. Do you know that you work hard in the circumstances that God gave you? If you had been born in a hut in Somalia in the 13th century, you could have worked hard and still had very little. But God chose the circumstances of now for you to be born into. So you work hard with what you've got given the circumstances that God has given you, with the talent God gave you, with life, health, and energy that God alone provides you so that he might remind you that you might be the one out there doing the work, but he's the one that's giving you life to do it, and everything that comes into your hands belongs to him because your circumstances could change in an instant. It's not yours. David, who was a very wealthy man, states in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 12 through 14, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we are giving to you only what comes from your hand. So in summary, there is a recognition for those of us that belong to God that God wants us to be radically generous with everything that he puts into our hands because it came from him first. And if you're not being radically generous, listen to me closely. It's not stinginess, it's robbery. It's not being miserly, it's thievery. It's not just a lack of compassion, but it's a lack of integrity. Because if you were a fund manager and you're not using the money the way the owner says that you should use it, if you're taking way more of it for yourself than was agreed upon, then you are a thief. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, the states, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? And he states, in tithes and offerings. Now in the Old Testament, everyone was told that 10% of their income needs to be given back to the work of the Lord. And, and some of you are saying, 10%? Wow, that's a lot of money. 10%? I've got to give 10% back to the Lord? But let me put it to you in a different perspective that may change things for you. If somebody came to you and said, listen, 
I'm looking for somebody to manage everything I've got and, and, and would you be willing to do it? And your question would be, well, what are the terms? How's this going to work? What's the contract look like? And, and the owner says, here's the deal. You manage everything that I've got and I will let you keep 90% of everything and all you have to do is give me 10%. Now, I want you to understand that if that were an actual job right now, I might apply. Because nobody gives terms like that. Except God. He says, these are the terms. I only demand that you live on 90% and that you give me 10%. And of course, then we look at that and say, well, that's not so bad after a while. And Malachi is stating to us as a church and as people that if we don't abide by this, then we are acting as a thief toward the things of God. Now, somebody will also say, well, isn't that 10% thing? Isn't that tithe thing? Isn't that just Old Testament? And I don't have time this morning to go through all of the New Testament scriptures which indicate that Jesus said, yes, it's, it's not just an Old Testament principle, but I approve of it in the New. But let me put it to you this way. Are the standards of grace greater for us in the New Testament than the Old Testament? Are the benefits that we receive today as New Testament saints greater than those of Old Testament saints? We would all look at that and say, absolutely, we live in an unbelievable time where the grace of God is being shed abroad. And so as a result of that, we would instantly recognize that if 10% was an Old Testament principle, we're living in way more benefit and blessing than that. And so that would be a floor, not a ceiling to what God would have for us. Therefore, the standards for New Testament saints are always higher. And what it means is that if you're not giving in the vicinity of 10% of what God brings into your life, then you will have to stand and give an account one day just as this parable spoke about of the manager. Now, I recognize today that we are living in a day where so many people are living paycheck to paycheck, and we, we as a people actually spend more than we bring in. There's massive amounts of debt. And, and those that have been coming to Christ, so many of them are coming in with, with financial bondage. And I want you to know that, that we are working on ways that we can help bring in a, uh, some education and alleviate people living in the, in, in the bondages of debt. But what it means is that when you come to Christ, that you begin to reorganize your life. There are those that I could have stand here and give testimony after testimony about how they never thought they could obey God, but once they began, they begin to recognize that God takes the 90% and somehow stretches that beyond what you ever thought would be possible because he responds to the obedience of his people. The second point of this is that we are in need of a love that is not here. In Luke chapter 16, verse 8, it says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus said, within a secular framework, the people of this world are wiser in using their money to leverage it for things that they want than the people of the kingdom of God are wise in lev leveraging God's money for the things of the kingdom of God. In fact, in verse 9, he says, I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus is kind of doing an if this, how much more comparison for us in Scripture. And he's telling us in this story that what, what this worldly manager did in the secular framework of his life 
was recognized that he was about to get fired from a job, so what he did is he gave up some short-term money and financial gain so that he could make something that would be more worthwhile in the long term. And he began to think that the long-term valuable issue for me will be developing friendships. And so I'm going to cut the bill of people that owe a lot so that they'll be my friends and I can leverage that friendship perhaps into another job. So Jesus is saying, even within that framework, that was a very shrewd thing to do because he recognized that the friendships that he would make would be more valuable to him in the long run than any money that he could have made in the short term. It would be wise of us to recognize that we would be better to limit how much money we're making now if it means that you can invest in something that long term would be far more profitable and would continue to grow in value. We're all looking for investments like that, things that won't go down in value. And so Jesus has us ask ourselves, what is it in this world and on this earth that really lasts? And as we begin to view it, we recognize nothing. There is not a single investment. There's not a single material that you can own. There's not a single piece of property that you can have that is going to provide value to you after your last breath. I have stood by the caskets of many who've accumulated a lot in life, and the moment that their life ended, if they hadn't thought about what's on the other side, then everything they had here that they was so valuable goes to somebody else and Jesus is saying I want you just to look at things differently if you will send your money forward he's saying and put your money into the kingdom of God it will be an eternal investment and an eternal kingdom and everything that you put there will never go down in value spend your money in such a way that there's glory in heaven bring people to Christ build the kingdom of God because that is something that you can never lose Now, we look at this, and and really, God approaches this through us in two levels, the head level and the heart level. How many of you are rule keepers? You know, you you hear the rules, and by nature, you say, I keep the rules. Don't be afraid. I'm one of those. How many of you are heart people? Nothing moves you unless you're emotionally stirred in your heart. How many of you are not going to raise your hand because you don't care what I say? (laughs) I feel like I'm all alone here this morning. Jesus kind of approaches this two ways because he recognized that there are some people that when you hear that heaven is a place where streets are made of gold, that you live forever, perfect happiness, perfect peace, and that idea hits in your head and it causes you to be motivated to give, then there's other people that are going, you know what, I know it's the right thing to do and it's all up here, but how are you going to reach my heart? And so Jesus says, let me reach your heart with this. He says, the one thing that everybody on this earth loves is friendships. The biggest problem in our world today is people that are absolutely lonely. And you ask lonely people what they want, they want deep abiding friendships and relationships. And so Jesus says, let me approach approach you on this at a heart level. He says, I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Now, if we stopped right there, it might mean, it might seem like he's trying to say, I want you to buy friendships. That's not it at all. But there are some people who will do anything for just to have people around them. 
The prodigal son went away and spent all of his funds that the father had given him. And people were around him when he had money. But the moment the money was gone, he was all by himself. And so the friendships were not real. So Jesus adds this. So that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He says, use your money here to make friends that will welcome you into eternal dwellings. That's the way that this is actually written. Use your money here so that when you get to heaven, you will be welcomed by people who your money influenced for them to get there. Michael Wilcock, who wrote a commentary on Luke, puts it perfectly when he says this about this point in the parable. Although these things, your property, your ability, and time belong to the Lord in this life only... Jesus says what will happen to you then when you pass on into the afterlife will depend on what you were doing with them here and now. Make sure that your use of your money brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. Oh, hallelujah. So Jesus is saying, because even in this part of the parabolic narrative, he's, he's speaking of this, that the, the steward in this parable realizes it's more important to have friends than it is to have money in the bank. So he forgoes a short-term boost of money for a long-term friendship and realizes that that's worth more. Listen, money will never give you significance. It will never give you security. In fact, the security money provides is like standing under a paper umbrella in a hurricane. Money will always overpromise and always underdeliver. It's love that gives you significance. It's love that makes you secure, friends that make you significant, friends that love you and make you secure. And in the end, that's all your heart really longs for is love. And it's ultimately the thing that you need. And you only feel truly wealthy when you are loving people and you're surrounded with people that love you back. That's why we hear after every disaster, people that may have lost lots of property and they say this, it's only stuff, at least I'm alive and I still have my friends and family because they recognize the value is not in the, the, the wealth, the value is in the relationships. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon that you can find online and it's called Heaven is a World of Love and in that sermon he says that there, pre heaven preeminently is a place of love because that is actually what each of us long for and what each of us want and what each of us are after. And so he goes so far as to say as much as love is a source of joy, in this life, love is also a source of pain. And he talks about five barriers that we find here that will be completely gone in heaven. The first is this. We all want to be loved for our own sake. We want to be loved for just who we are. Have any of you ever heard that? I just want somebody to love me for who I am. It's a longing of our heart. Many of you know the pain of thinking that somebody loves you for who you are only to discover that when you quit meeting their demands of what they wanted from you, that their love for you ended and you realized they were just using you. And that caused an immense amount of pain. Basically, if we were honest, almost none of us love each other for our own sake. We love people for what we can get back from them. And we can never fully understand being loved for just our own sake here. But there, when we get to heaven, there, absolutely, completely, and fully, we will be loved for who we are because we will no longer look at other people as to what they give because we will be fully given everything in Jesus. 
and we will be loved for our own sake, and we will love the same way. The second barrier that we find here that won't be there is we want to express our love without impediment. Because of pride and selfishness and coldness, it seems as if we can never fully articulate to other people exactly what they mean to us. I had a conversation with a father recently who told me, he says, I love my family so much, but I came from a background where I never heard it from my dad, and I don't even know how to say it. It makes me feel so uncomfortable just to, to say to them, I love you, and he says, it makes me so mad that I can't express what's in my heart for them. And he says, it leaves them wondering oftentimes, and I feel so much love, I just don't know how to express it. There are many people today who are living Loved by many people, loved by their families who never learned how to be able to express that. And that's something that takes place here, but will not be there. Because there we will be able to love without impediment. And we'll be able to fully express it and fully receive it in the same measureless ways. Thirdly, you want to love mutually. There's something about love that desires an answer. For any of you that ever took the risk of saying to somebody else first, I love you, you hope that the response is favorable. <laughs> because when you love deeply and intensely, it desires reciprocity. Cindy and I love each other. We've had an ongoing argument for over 35 years about who loves each other the most. I win because I loved her first. I've loved her the longest, and since love can only grow at a certain rate, she can never catch up. <laughs> she tells me that I don't understand love. <laughs> and the more we have this argument, the more both of us begin to realize that this is not an argument either of us wants to really win. We always have this fear that we're putting more into a relationship than we're getting in return. And, and in this life, so many people that you love, you know you love them more than they love you. And that's nothing but pain. But there, there, everybody will love everybody else mutually and fully. It will be perfect when you get there. Fourthly, we want to love in perfect happiness. Some of you already know that if you love somebody that is not happy, it destroys your ability to be happy. If you love somebody that's not happy, it destroys your ability to be happy. It's because we actually insert our happiness into their happiness, which means that if they are miserable... You can't be happy. Now, I had a conversation with a mother recently, and I said, let me, let me ask you a question, and you tell me if this is true, that once you start having children, you are never happier than your most unhappy child. And she goes, that is absolutely true. And I said, how so sorry for you. You can never be happier than the people that you love, so you quickly realize that if you have more than five friends, you're miserable. But the Lord says that's only a here thing. Because when you realize that 
it will be perfect there and everybody will be perfectly happy with all of the people. Everybody is happy. There will be perfect happiness there that you will never, ever, ever have to use the words in heaven looking at somebody and saying, what's wrong? Because happiness and love will go hand in hand. The fifth one is we want to love without parting. Every wedding that every minister does, there's this thought in our mind at some point when we say to them, till death do you part, one of the two of them is going to have to grieve the other. Unless they go in a plane crash together, and that's about perfect if you can say a plane crash is perfect, but I should stop right there. <laughs> the thought that counts and the thought... Okay, Jesus, you can come now. <laughs> At Thanksgiving, you're going to be sitting around a table, and most of you are going to have large families, and it's noisy, and potatoes are flying, and somewhere around that table is one person that's going to watch everybody else pass away. And we begin to recognize that the perfect love that we want without parting is not possible here. But there... But there, there'll be no more goodbyes. Because here we are like beached whales. A beached whale is alive, but not for long, and it's not having a great time. <laughs> and you and I were made for a different kind of love than what we're experiencing here. It's the kind of love that the whale gets back into the water and finally in water that is deep and beautiful and clear and pure, it can reach all of its capabilities and all of its capacities are fully realized and we were designed for perfect love. We're designed for what Jesus said heaven is going to be like and he said you have the opportunity because of Jesus to live with perfect love forever. Imagine what it will be like to be completely believing this because of what Jesus has done. And to know that because of what he's done, I'm going to live with my friends and I'm going to live with my family and I'm going to live with my loving Savior and it will be perfect love all the time. Oh, hallelujah. Love for its own sake. Love without impediment. Love mutually and completely. Love in perfect happiness and love without parting. Do you realize that when you believe this fully, it changes the way you spend your money? Do you realize that when you believe this fully, that there are friends that you have the opportunity of investing in such a way that when we give to missions and the missionaries that are going out and leading people to Christ, that someday when the gates of heaven are open and you come walking in, the streets will be lined not just with Jesus, but with the friends that are there because of your investment and in recognizing that the money God gave you, you chose to invest in relationships, some of which you won't even know till you get there. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Use your worldly wealth in light of the fact that what really lasts is love and what really lasts is people. So what does that mean? Let me give you three very quick practical applications as our music team prepares themselves. Never make money at the expense of people. Money fails and be gone, but people and friendships last forever. Number two, put your money into people's needs. Don't just put it into savings banks for yourself. Invest it in people and help them 
so that some whose lives are broken can be restored. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Isaiah 48 says this, the word of God lasts forever. So when you help bring the word of God into connection with people and they find faith, they will be your friends for eternity. Think about that. So use your money so that you can make friends that can never be taken away. Invest it in what is coming rather than what is here so that when you stand before God as the manager of everything that he's given, you can see streets lined with people because you recognize that God was using what he's given to you to help build relationships and friendships that you will have for eternity. I'm going to ask our ushers if they would please begin to distribute the elements for communion and then it, we get to communion I'm going to tie this last point in together as we have that I'm going to ask that you would hold the wafer and the juice until everybody is served and then we will partake together and if you're a guest here if you believe Jesus is your sick we want you to participate with us this morning you don't have to be a member of the church but you do need to know Jesus today would you please serve
presence of the Lord this morning, the third point is that we are recipients of a friendship that cannot be equaled. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. Here's why all of this is possible. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to be as generous as the Macedonians were, had been. And he says, I don't want you to give because I'm commanding you to give. I want you to give because I want you to compare your love to the love that Jesus showed you. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 8, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What we have for us in the story of Jesus is the story of the one who owns it all, who gave it all away so that you and I could be friends for eternity with him. He had everything. Nothing was outside of his power. Nothing is outside of his wealth gathering. And he came to this earth and he didn't tithe of his blood. He gave it all so that thinking forward, you and I, when the gates of heaven are opened, can become friends with him for eternity. And in that is the example of what it means to be generous. Jesus is generous. And on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread that he had and he, and he broke it and he distributed it among the men that were there. And though they didn't fully understand at the time everything that was about to take place, he explained to them that this symbol that you're holding in your hand is the symbol of my broken body. It's the symbol of how much I am having to give away in order to be able to have relationship with you. And then he told them, I want you to take it and eat it. Father, we ask that you would bless this symbol of your body, which gives us just a hint of what you were willing to give away in order to bring us into relationship, that for eternity we can be with you in perfect love and relationship, because you as the wealthy man gave it to invest in us as people. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let us partake together. They neared the conclusion of the meal. Jesus is the true steward that's invested his riches in his life, took it to the cross for us, and he said, this is the New Testament in my blood. This moves you from a rules and regulation relationship into a relationship of grace where the benefits far outweigh those of the Old Testament. This moves you, he says, into a place where the sacrifice and the generosity of what I'm doing, you can begin to clearly see because as a result of my blood, there'll be no more lambs that will have to be slain because I am the perfect lamb. There'll be no more sacrifices because I as God take your place and that which you owed, I pour out as the rich man desiring eternal relationship with you. So Lord, we hold before you the cup which is the symbol of your blood which transforms us from sinners to saints. It transforms us from hopeless to hopeful. It transforms us from graceless to grace and transforms us from death to life. Thank you 
for investing in eternal friendships when you gave your blood on the cross to die for us, to pay a penalty that we could not owe. You took our debt and you crossed it off and you said, I'll pay it. Not just some of it like the man did in the story of the parable, but all of it because we were incapable of paying it. And today we celebrate you, Lord, and the eternal relationship we have because of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us partake together. Hallelujah. So, Father, today we come to an understanding that generosity of our spirit, understanding that we can be shockingly generous in the proportions of what we give in every area of our life and our money because we finally understand your love for us and it changes our perspective on everything. So, Father, lead us and guide us. Help us as we walk in obedience so that every dollar that we give toward you and your kingdom will result in new souls coming to know you so that we can have everlasting friendships and perfect love as we give it forward. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite our altar team to be prepared to minister to people this morning. And as we conclude, if you have needs in your life that you would like somebody to pray for, then I want you to feel free to come and there will be those here to join you. For those of you that feel that you must go this morning, then would you go with a generous heart and a smile on your face and let's be thankful for all that he has done for us to bring us into everlasting friendship with Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord.